All right. You can pass the buckets. While they are doing that, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, we'll get there in just a minute. What we're trying to do in this series, if you have not been here, is we're trying to construct what is called a warfare theodicy. Everybody say theodicy. A theodicy, once again, is a technical theological term that describes an attempt to really describe the world in such a way that it makes sense that God can be good, and yet there can still be all this evil. This is, in my opinion, one of the most important topics that there, there is because it affects every part of life and what kind of world do we live in. Christian theodicies tend to fall into two categories. There are the blueprint theodicies, and there's a whole bunch of different ones, but from Augustine in, in a little after 300 AD up to today, the blueprint model has been the most influential, and it has suggested that evil exists basically because God wills it for a higher purpose. And there's a higher harmony and that these evil things that happen around us, they are doing something that we can't always understand, and that's why God wills them. And the converse of that is what I believe, which is called the warfare theodicy, and it suggests that evil exists simply because there are a whole bunch of free agents. There are billions and billions of angels, demons, humans, even animals to some degree possess some kind of will. And so all these, all these wills are colliding with one another in incredibly complex ways. And God is not controlling all those wills. And some of them are evil and want to do evil things, and that's why evil exists. And that's um, what we've been talking about. I haven't actually tried to defend that view at all. I've just been trying to explain it. Somebody asked me if the series was almost over, and I'm like, no, no, because all we've done is just tried to explain that the world looks like a war zone. After this, I have to defend that it actually is one. And so to do that, I have to prove that free will exists and some other stuff that'll be fun and complicated. But anyway, um, so I believe that God is locked in an actual battle, not some kind of scripted play with the evil wills that are in, in the world. I've argued that God created a heavenly council of beings, uh, what we might call lesser gods. They're just angels, but they, uh, like Lucifer and so forth, and that these gods subjugated humans underneath them and that they are controlling humans to some degree and wreaking all kinds of havoc. Last week I explained that what gives demonic powers control over us is when we worship idols. I know that none of you probably have a statue in your closet that you're secretly burning incense to. At least I hope not, okay? But when I say worshiping idols, I mean, I mean having pictures of God that are less than the real thing. And these pictures often get painted on our hearts by demons, and when we believe them, that empowers the demonic realm. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. 
The serpent came and said, God isn't really good. God wants to withhold something good from you. And they believed the lie of the devil, the lie of the enemy, and that empowered the enemy. They, they literally switched gods. They quit believing the word of the Lord, and they believed the word of, of the enemy. They worshipped the enemy. And so nations and individuals are held in thrall or captive by demonic powers to the extent that they worship idols. That practically means that people are in bondage when they believe lies about God and worship lesser things. And when you worship lesser things, that causes you to sin. If anybody, if you've ever looked at your life and ever looked at a chronic sin issue that you might have, you can usually trace that if you think about it. You can trace it to something wrong you believe about God or something wrong you believe about yourself. If you'll shift what you'll believe, that doesn't automatically fix the sin problem, but it sure, sure sets you up <laughs> to, to do better in the future. All right? Uh, so Jesus came down here, we said last week, to destroy demonic powers and set people free. 1 John 3, 8 said, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest, that He might destroy the works of the devil. How did Jesus do this? This is the question. This is the hard question, is how did Jesus defeat these evil powers? Hebrews 2.14 tells us, look at it in your own Bible, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part in the same. He also became a human, that through death he might destroy him that has the power of death, that is the devil. How did, how did Jesus overcome the devil? He overcame him by dying on the cross. And we think, okay, that, that all makes sense. But it's not immediately clear, like I talked about last week, why that works. Well, one of the reasons it works is that it forgave our sins. And if, if we have our sins forgiven, then that robs the devil of some authority over us. But the other issue is that it breaks the grip of idolatry on our hearts by revealing who God is and who the devil is. In other words, the cross shows us, I said last week, that God is good and loving and patient and kind and not a torturer and not vindictive, whereas it also reveals that the devil is vindictive and cruel and base and ugly. Everybody okay? And so if we quit believing what the devil says about God and believe what, what Jesus reveals about God, we'll be set free. And that's what Paul saw his ministry as. Let's look at what, Paul, what Jesus told Paul in Acts 26, 18. It says that Paul, what, he, what was he trying to do? You know, Paul just went around like a madman preaching and explaining stuff to people. And it said he did this to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light. I've got to come out of my confused understanding about God. I've got to come out of my idolatrous pagan pictures of God. I've got to get rid of my wrong pictures of God, and I've got, to, I've got to come into the light. For what purpose? That I might receive the forgiveness of my sins and an inheritance among those that are sanctified by faith that is in me. So if I will, if I will let go of my idolatry and put faith in Jesus, and particularly Jesus on the cross, I'll have my sins forgiven and I'll be set free from the power of the enemy. How many of you think that sounds like a good deal? Yeah. All right. So we're progressively trying to do that. Now, I, I went over this a little bit last week, but I wanted to clarify it because I know it, 
it was startling to a lot of people. So what actually happened on the cross? A lot of stuff happened, so much stuff that you can't in any way talk about it in one message. But one thing that did not happen is that God did not torture Jesus. And I know that that is contrary to how a lot of us have been taught about this thing, and so I want to try to explain this. But in my opinion, God only punished Jesus and or Jesus experienced the wrath of God only in the sense that God gave Jesus over to the destructive impulses of humanity and the demonic realm. So look, look at Romans 8.32. I read scripture that showed that last week, but let's read this one. Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? It doesn't say he that tortured his own son. It says he that spared not. John 3.16 says he gave his only begotten son. The idea is that God gave over. He didn't spare. He handed Jesus over to the demonic powers. And 1 Corinthians 3.2 says that they crucified him. And we also saw in Acts that Peter accused the Jews and everybody around there of crucifying Jesus. Now, some people took that and became anti-Semites, and that was, that was not good. The point isn't, isn't that the Jews killed Jesus. The point is that humanity killed Jesus. All right? And so the cross, this brutal thing that happened to God, it reveals how broken and messed up both humanity is and the demonic powers. It does not reveal God to be some vindictive torturer that takes delight in the suffering of His Son. Okay. <laughs> Say, Pastor, you got to prove that. I know, I will. <laughs> I, I want to explain my point just a little bit further. Ignoring lots of theological minutiae, here's what we should under, understand, okay? What was Jesus trying to do on the cross? Was Jesus trying to save us from God, or was he trying to save us from sin? you got to go back to the original warning. The original warning that God gave Adam was, don't eat this tree, right? Because if you eat of this tree, what will happen? I'll kill you. Does he say that? No. He says, in the day you eat of this tree, you'll die. It's like me saying to my kid, don't go over there and stick your hand on the hot stove. Now, if my kid goes over there and sticks his hand on the hot stove and he gets burned, did I do that to him? No. So the warning is, sin has real consequences. The result of them is death, not me murdering you in a brutal way. Good fathers don't murder their kids for screwing up. That doesn't mean their kids can't have bad things happen to them. But I'm not going to do it. Okay, I know that's serious, okay? So here's, here's my contention, is that God has never been man's problem. Jesus isn't trying to help us escape from the Father while the Father is trying to kill us. Rather, Jesus and the Father were working together to rescue us um, from the consequences of our idolatry. And on the cross, Jesus experienced those for us. 
All right, the number one, and this view of the cross is called Christus Victor. Everybody say Christus Victor. That means uh, Christ the victor. It was, it was the most popular view of the atonement for about either the first 300 years or the first thousand, I can't remember. Um, there's too many books in my head right now. But, but anyway, uh, in Isaiah 53, the main objection to what I just said to you is in Isaiah 53. So let's just look at it. Again, many people assume that the cross with all its violence exists to appease God in the sense that God is horrifically angry about sin and wants to brutalize somebody, so he brutalized Jesus, and that allowed him to calm down, and now he's going to forgive you. That's a bit of a caricature of the view, but nevertheless, that's how people end up thinking about it in, in their hearts. So no scholar says that, but that's how people interpret it a lot of times. Okay. So, uh, where do we get this picture? Well, mostly we get it from this guy named Anselm in, the, in medieval literature. And, and during that time, the way you dealt with infidels was to torture them. And they had a, they had a, you know, a mentality that was different than the early church and, and our time. Okay, But nevertheless, these verses, we have to deal with them. So what, what do they say? Isaiah 53.10 says this, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Does it say that? It says, He has put him to grief. When he shall make his soul an offering for sin, he'll see his seed, prolong his days, etc., etc. Okay, so it says there that the Lord bruised him, and, and a better translation literally is crushed him. So it says that the Lord crushed him. Well, Pastor, I thought you just said that God didn't crucify Jesus. Well, what this is, in my opinion, is an idiom. Everybody say idiom. idiom. Okay, not an idiot, an, an idiom. It's a, it's a way of speaking, all right? It's called the, the metonymy of the, of the subject, which, which means that sometimes if, if, if you set up the circumstances that result in something happening, you can be given credit for it, even if you're not the one that carried it out. I'll give you some examples in Scripture. Look back at Genesis 4, verse 1, really quickly. Adam and Eve, uh, let's just read it on the screen. It says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Everybody see that? A modern scholar looked at that, and he probably needed to get his mind out of the gutter, but he... He looked at that and he wrote an essay about how that Yahweh is a sexual deity and, and that he somehow participated in, in producing this baby because Eve said, I got a baby from the Lord. She gives the Lord credit. Just like Isaiah gives the Lord credit for what happened on the cross. Okay, but any reasonable person will tell you that, that God did not need to be involved physically for that deal to go forth. Okay? It says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. Why does God get the credit? Because God created the circumstances which resulted in the baby. Meaning, he created Adam and Eve with certain organs which allowed the reproduction to happen, and then, and then he said to them, 
be fruitful and multiply. And it was his will. Was it his will that they have kids? Yeah. So was Eve right to give God credit for what happened? Sure, but, did, what, but was he physically involved in the act of making the baby? No. Similarly, if you go over to um, 2 Samuel 12, this says it even clearer. This is about David, but the, the, the speech pattern makes sense. 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, says this. Uh, it's Nathan. So you remember the story. David gets Bathsheba pregnant, and then he has Uriah killed. Right, And so the way he has Uriah killed is he sends a letter and he says, look, put Uriah out there on the, on the battlefield, then everybody withdraw from him and Uriah will get killed. Everybody remember that story? Well, read this verse. It, it says, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Let's read that again. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Did David take a sword and run it into Uriah's body? No. Why does David get credit? Because he set up the circumstances that resulted in Uriah being killed. And he wanted Uriah to be killed. But the violence with which Uriah was killed hinged totally on the person who killed him. And knowing David's character, I mean, this is the, the, I mean, a huge lapse in character, right? But knowing his character from the rest of, of the Scripture, it's unlikely that David looked at this with any sort of vindictiveness or wanted Uriah to suffer any more than he had to. He just wanted him to die. So the level of suffering that Uriah experienced totally hinged on these other agents' will. Okay, you take that back to, to this scripture. Go back to Isaiah 53. I'm in Jeremiah. Isaiah 53, it says, It pleased the Lord to crush him. In what sense did God crush him? God is not the one that drove the nails into Jesus' hands. God is the one that set up the circumstances that resulted in Jesus' death. But the torturous way in which that death was carried out had everything to do with the violence inherent in humanity and in the demonic realm, not the violence and vindictiveness inherent in God's heart. God, God looked at that suffering and was grieved by it. Now, Pastor, I thought it said he was pleased to crush it. Well, look at Hebrews 12. Again, I believe it's just a, a way of speaking. Look at Hebrews 12. How many of you believe Jesus and the Father are one? So their opinion about the cross should probably be the same, right? I mean, if it's not, we probably have problems. So Hebrews 12.2 says this, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. What that says is Jesus, how did he deal with the cross? By looking at the joy that was on the other side of the cross. 
Jesus did not enjoy the cross, but he was pleased to go to the cross because it resulted in the forgiveness of all humanity. And it brought us back into right relationship with the Father. He was not pleased with the process. He was pleased with the outcome. Similarly, the Father was not pleased. God, God, there is nothing in God's heart that takes pleasure in torturing somebody. And I had to repent because I believed that about God. But that is not what that says. It's saying that that God took pleasure in the outcome. What the result of the crushing was, not the crushing itself. Well, let's go back, and there's one more verse that seems to be confusing, Isaiah 53. And I, I believe at the end of this series, I'm going to argue that in the same way that God didn't torture Jesus, I don't believe God is torturing people in hell. I believe hell is real, but I don't believe that, that it's... I believe it's people torturing themselves. And I'll explain that. So now look at verse 53, or Isaiah 53, 11. It says, God will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Well, why is that... Tra- You've got to understand, this, this is King James, and I love the King James. But Jesus did not read the King James Bible. I know that bothers some people, but Jesus, the King James Bible was not written. I mean, I know, anyway, I used to argue with these people. But, but the, the, all transla- you ought to read a bunch of different translations because all translations have a particular viewpoint. And when this was, was translated, it was, it was right after the Middle Ages, and their view of the atonement was that God tortured Jesus, and now you're okay. And so it made sense of them to translate the word travail here, travail, but it's the Hebrew word amal, and almost every other time in the, in the Scripture, it's translated labor, not travail. Labor, like hard work, painful work. So what's it mean? It means he's... He, he's going to see this hard work. It was hard work, Jesus on the cross, and he established the new covenant. And once again, God's pleased with the outcome. And he's satisfied with the outcome, but he's not, it's not, he is not a bloodthirsty pagan deity that needs to torture somebody before he can calm down. That's not what it says. Now here's an even more amazing thing is that, okay, I just, to me, I explain those two verses in a way that's satisfying. But if you're not satisfied, (laughs) I'll tell you this, the Septuagint, which is the Bible that Jesus read, he didn't read, he actually read the Septuagint, he did read a Bible, and it was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures called the Septuagint. Here's what it says in these verses. It says this, The Lord is also pleased to purge him, from his stroke. That's like the exact opposite. If you can give an offering for your sin, your soul shall be a long-lived seed. The Lord is also pleased to take away from the travail of his soul. 
Now, Pastor, which translation's right? You know, I don't really know, but I do know this. This is the one Jesus read, which, which means that I don't see any way that Jesus could have read that and thought that when he went to the cross that God was, was going to be the one driving the nails into his hands. We read that in our translation, but Jesus, Jesus didn't read it. And this is the only passage that suggests anything like that that I'm aware of in the whole Bible. There's another couple of verses that are a little bit... Um, but I'm not, I can't explain those right now because we need to eat food. But anyway, so I'm aware of, of the far-reaching uh, questions and implications of that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to fight anybody about this, but if you want a long-winded book <laughs> that explains what I explained right there, you can read The Day the Revolution Began by N.T. Wright. I don't agree with everything he says, but, but he, he explains all that really well. So I just taught this because I felt like it was important in the broader scope to see how God intends to deal with evil. And so God overcomes evil not through violent coercion, but by loving self-sacrifice. That's how he wins. So, so God won on the cross not by killing anybody, not by cutting the devil's thumbs off and stuff. He won by dying by sacrificing himself. And that informs how we're supposed to live, and that's why Jesus told us to take up our cross and follow him. He wasn't saying, try to kill your old man or do a bunch of legalism. What he was saying is, lead a self-sacrificing life like me, because that's how you defeat the evil forces. And that's, the church took that super literally for the first 300 years because that's how they dealt with all the oppression as they went and were martyred. And we, there are people that, you know, they had volunteer martyrs. I mean, they would just, they would, I'm a Christian, kill me. And they believed that, that by sacrificing themselves that way that the kingdom would expand. And you know what? It worked. Christianity conquered the Roman Empire. Amen. The blood of the martyrs. Now, I don't think that that means that we need to feel bad that we're not, we're not like at risk of being martyred and stuff. There are people all throughout the world that are. Mm -hmm. But we should be thankful that we live in a country where we're not at risk of, of that. That means the gospel has made an impact. It means the darkness has, has rolled back from here largely. But... It does teach us that we, we do. We need to take up our cross and follow Jesus. So I'm not, I'm not at risk of being martyred, but how many of you understand that there's evil around us? And how do we, how do we deal with that? Well, we, we live sacrificially towards other people. We love people that don't love us. We reach out to people that, that you know, I like... Um, uh, we, we give, we, we really like this organization, Advice and Aid. They're a, um, a crisis pregnancy center. And so I believe that, that one evil that's going on right now is, is abortion. And so, but the way to fight that is not by, you know, we had, a, we had a, back at my old church, we had a Planned Parenthood just down the road. And some, some guy went in there and killed a bunch of people. 
just right down the, the road, you know, and he thought he was on a mission from God. No, he wasn't. He was on a mission from hell. Now, I know, they're killing babies in there. It's terrible, but that's not how God overcomes the evil. That's not his methodology. And so what this advice and aid does is they just, they just give away stuff for free. They, they give away free uh, uh, sonograms, and they uh, give away free STD treatments, and they just love on women that are broken and in difficult situations. They live sacrificially. Hallelujah. And so those are the kinds of things that the church needs to do to overcome the evil. All right? So what it means is we should embrace a servant lifestyle for the sake of the gospel. But what this shows, this is the most amazing thing, is, is Jesus, he defeated the devil once and for all on the cross. But how many of you have noticed after that that people are still in bondage to the devil? Why is that? Because the way, the way God defeats evil, it doesn't force anybody to believe. God's non-coercive. So God got up in, in the ultimate act of self-revelation. God got up on a cross and died for us. And then he said, go around and tell people about this. What are we supposed to tell people? We're supposed to tell people that God is loving and for He's a good, good Father. He's perfect in all of His ways. He's beautiful beyond conception. But people have a choice about whether or not they're going to believe that. Why did God do that? Because He doesn't want, he doesn't, he doesn't want people to, to be controlled. He believes in freedom. And, and so... We all have a choice. Are we going to believe the God of the cross or are we going to believe some other lesser revelation? And so in, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. In principle, Jesus is the ruler of the whole earth. But right now, we don't see him ruling everything. Why not? Because people haven't put faith in Jesus. Well, amen. And, and unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of the church has, been, has, has put faith in a conception of Jesus that is far less than the real thing. And we've made God out to be the, the bad guy in so many ways. And, and um, you know, the Scripture says that Jesus was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I've got to be careful here. I, I, I don't agree with our Catholic brothers and sisters that Jesus is perpetually suffering on the cross. That, that ended, you know, when He died. But... I do believe that God has always suffered violence at the hands of His creation. And what I mean by that is that I believe that God has always had His character maligned by humanity since the beginning of time. He's always been being defaced by us. And He's always allowed that. God, God has suffered more than anybody. When people suffer, God suffers with them. So anyway, at some point in the future, Jesus is going to come back. How many of you are encouraged about that? And so he's going to come back, and, and those who have hardened themselves against his rule, they're going to be removed. But still, that's not coercion. It's just, it's just giving people what they want. So I'm, what I'm trying to do is I've, just, I've been trying to show you that there are real demonic principalities and powers. There is real evil. 
God overcomes it by His loving self-sacrifice. That's where we're in now. And then where are we headed? Well, let's finish this and then we'll go eat some food. So Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 5 through 8 says this, For unto the angels has He not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. So the world to come, and there's a new world coming. Hallelujah. Who's He put it under? Not angels, right? But then He says, now why not? Well, because right now the world is subject to angels. And it says this, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels. A lot of translations say you made him a little while lower than the angels, or for a space, for a period. You crown him with glory and honor, and you set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then he says later, we don't yet see that. What's the point? We're headed, so... God in creation, originally, He created man, He created the angelic realm, and then He created, or sorry, there's God, the angelic realm, and then there's man. And the angelic realm fell, and they corrupted themselves. And, and they were meant to, I think, be partners with us or something. It's kind of confusing. But in any case, we ended up worshiping them, worshiping all these false gods, and they became our rulers. But it says in the new age that humanity is going to be put in charge. Resurrected saints living in a new heaven and a new earth. Why is that significant? Because when we get there, it won't be because we deserve it. The trouble with Lucifer was he was created perfect and beautiful and he had all these gems probably on his body. He was in Eden, the scripture said. He was, it appears, he was maybe second in command right after, right after God. I don't know that, but that's how it looks. And he was exalted in pride. But you and me, we're a bunch of dust. And we're sinners that we've been saved, but we had sin. And the only way we're going to get to that place of authority is the grace of God. The incredible grace of God. And that, that's, going to, that's going to keep us safe for all eternity because we'll be thankful. Because you'll be able to remember, man, I don't deserve being here. Thank God. And that's why we have that scripture. Some of you asked me about this a couple weeks ago. But 1 Corinthians 6, 3 says that we're going to judge angels you don't want to get too lost in that, but it, it means the authority structure is going to be reversed. Hallelujah. And, and the devil and his minions are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And so we won't have to deal with that anymore. So at this point, though, it's, it's important to remember Jesus' admonition. So the, the disciples, you understand the disciples knew this? That's why James and John got their mom to go to Jesus and say, and say Jesus you know, set James and John at my right and my left hand. And Chris Valentin always makes the joke that the other disciples were mad because they didn't think to get their mom involved. But 
but they knew that Jesus was coming into a new kingdom and they wanted to be involved in the authority structure. What did Jesus say? He said, if you want to be the greatest, you got to be the servant of all. Because what kind of king is Jesus? He's the kind of king that dies for his creation. He's the kind of king that gets off the throne, that doesn't demand the rights and privileges associated with his position. He, he humbly serves and loves. And that's, that's the kind of people we're called to be. So if we want to be great, we need to race to the bottom and become the servant of all. Well, I hope this helps somebody. Marcus will be here next week, and then when we come back, I'll start to defend this viewpoint, um, the warfare viewpoint. And I'll talk about free will. and uh, So it'll be good. All right, let's all stand up. Or actually, I won't. I have one more message about this. Anyway, it'll be good regardless. I'm going to talk about Job. So my, if my prayer team can come down here, I'm going to pray for everybody. We got a bunch of food out there. Please stay in fellowship. We'd love to have you. Uh, if you want to meet Molly and I, we'll be right down front here in just a second. But I'm going to pray for everybody, and then we'll dismiss and eat. So, Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for revealing yourself as the perfect and beautiful and good God that you are. And we just bless your people and we bless the food in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you need personal prayer, come down. If you want to meet Molly and I, we'll be right down here. Otherwise, go eat. Don't wait for us. Just go grab a plate and uh, go after it. The food's already blessed. I prayed for it. So.